Hi, we're Grace and Clara, here to shake up the world of women's health. We know firsthand how intimidating it can be to speak up when it comes to issues like your menstrual cycle or menopause. That's why we created Unprocessed, a weekly podcast where we dive into every aspect of women's health, from mental well-being to physical nutrition. We're here to ask the burning questions and encourage us all to advocate for ourselves. So get ready for some smart, cheeky and witty discussions about all things women's health. Hey everyone, welcome back to Unprocessed. I have a question for all the listeners today. Have you ever felt like you weren't good enough for your job or worried that you might be fired or found out? Has confidence ever held you back in life? You're not alone. Clara and I have felt this way many times throughout our lives and careers. And today we're going to deep dive with the Crappy to Happy podcast host, Cass Dunn. But before we dive into that, Clara, how has your week been? It's um, It's been an interesting week. We're on a journey of baby's first solids and first foods at the moment. So I feel like I'm like a really amazing cook and my baby just doesn't appreciate it. Oh man, you know what? I've seen Kingsley's meals and that girl doesn't know what she's missing out on. It looks delish. Every time she tries food, the face, it's like she's just not impressed whatsoever. It's definitely, they say that you've got to get them to taste it at least three times that's how I feel all the time it's like every time she tries something new she needs to taste it at least three times before she's into it but I've been like whipping up some really nice like little baby tagine style meals and I keep on thinking like I'm eating it going oh this yeah. is actually delicious and she's like mm. she's telling me I need to pick up my game (laughs) she's a tough little food critic it's so interesting that you bring this up because there has been an article that come up recently from Western Sydney University about the nutrition of popular processed baby foods like the squeeze pouches that are commonly used and researchers are advising parents to take caution when shopping for their little ones so I've been really involved in it um obviously going through Kingsley's first foods but also, from an I Quit Sugar standpoint, this is the stuff that we've been talking about now for, you know, 13 years. And I'm really surprised that manufacturers are still getting away with this. So within the first 12 months of baby's life, you've got to be, and I would say even longer, you've got to be no salt. Salt has always been heavily regulated in baby foods. It attacks their liver and it's really not great for lipid development. So, however, sugar has never Mm. been really heavily regulated. So these baby foods, they're just laden with sugar and a lot of them, they're claiming to be whole meals. So you think that you're getting, you know, carrots and broccoli and, Mm -hmm. you know, couscous in these squeezy pouches. And if you look at the back, they've got fruits in there as well so that the baby will actually find them palatable. And so they're heavy in these fruits and juices. They're sneaking it in. They're heavy in fruits and juices and syrups. And that's where they're getting away with it. So they're saying no agged sugar, but they're actually got juice or syrup in them. I personally think is shocking that we haven't yet, you know, reformed this area. So I believe it was out of 270 odd pouches, only two pouches were found to have the nutritional value, uh, the nutritional values that an infant needs. Really, we shouldn't be putting any sugars into our child's diet for at least up to the first two years if we can possibly help it. Now, obviously, there's good sugars that come from, um, as we talk about, certain fruits, mm-hmm. and those can be introduced. Definitely fruits are introduced. You know, we in I Quit Sugar World, we talk about adults not having juices because they're just mm-hmm. refined sugars. So really, this is something that we need to be cracking down on in this baby industry. I completely agree with you. And I know when I've had sugar, I can feel the effects on my body. So imagine how they're feeling. Their poor little bodies must be in shock. Oh, agreed. Yeah, it would be giving them these sugar highs and then sugar crashes. So, you know, sugar obviously affects everything. It affects mood, it affects anxiety, all of these things that are quite overwhelming for an adult. So I can imagine it's really overwhelming for a a child or a toddler or even a baby. Um, And, you know, when you're a mum, especially, you know, I'm a first-time mum, you're trying to regulate them the whole time. So you're looking for signs that they might be sleepy to make sure that they go down to sleep. You don't want to – you 
definitely don't want to extend that window because once you extend that window, everyone hears about witching hour. That's what happens. It becomes harder to put them back down. So, mm-hmm. and you really want regular sleep patterns in a baby, infant, and toddler. So, how are these pouches actually marketed to the consumer? They're being marketed as whole food. Um, and whole breakfast so and they're implying that they're really good for a baby's gut health which means that parents are assuming these are okay for a child to have every day now I understand as a first-time parent how hard it is to regularly cook food or to have something whole and nutritious and easy and easy as well so you know there's oftentimes you're on the go you're out and about and you're looking for something that is easy and nutritious for your child to eat so i i totally get the reasoning behind these pouches but when they're being marketed on whole foods it's really implying that these are pouches that you can use every day and unfortunately the way that this mislabeling of information and nutritional information is on the back and how confusing it is to read labels right it's really hard when they're being mislabeled on these baby pouches and you think you're doing the best thing for your child so it's amazing that they've done this study and we've seen these results but now what's the repercussions of this study like how do we hold these people to account for creating these products this is the problem i don't know what the repercussions are really going to realistically be our problem has always been that we have spoken about these issues for however long and nothing seems to change so i remember when there was a movement around 30 percent less sugar so you know mm-hmm. everywhere in the grocery store you were looking at brands showing that they were 30 percent less sugar 30 percent then what So that was a movement, but again, nothing really changed. So once that Mm. happened and once that became a marketing message, it all sort of went quiet once they had made their points. Now that seems to be going out of the market. And again, we've got these healthy choice labels. So, you know, you get this five-star health rating, but the five-star health rating really can be manipulated on the back end. So all they need to do is change out some of their ingredients pack them with fillers that are really bad for you that still let them pass these five-star ratings and the consumer thinks that they're making a healthier choice. So we really need greater reform and greater transparency on all our labelling. Hey, it's Grace here. Just want to quickly interrupt the episode to say it's time to start nourishing you. Join the eight-week program and get eight weeks of easy, delicious meal plans with full shopping lists. And at $5.50 or under per serve, it couldn't be more affordable to eat healthy. Each week, we'll give you a range of meals to cook that are quick and easy to prepare with minimal waste. You don't have to be a master chef to enjoy these nutritious meals. Plus fun online workouts, mentoring from industry experts, and access to our exclusive sleep school. Spots are limited. Join now. Now let's get back into the episode. So today we've got a really exciting guest, Cass Dunn of Coffee to Happy, and she's coming on to talk to us about imposter syndrome, which I think is a really important topic for women in particular. I think a lot of people don't even understand that that's what they're going through, imposter syndrome. I'm a bit nervous about having this conversation because obviously I feel like in my career, I feel massive imposter syndrome and it comes back to I've never felt good enough for the role and I've never had a degree to do the role. So as I said before, I work in marketing for I Quit Sugar, but my background is fashion and sewing and I used to make wedding dresses and pattern making. So it's actually quite a big jump to go to a completely different industry and a completely different job title. And there has been moments in my career when I've wanted a promotion and not gone for it. I've asked for something and been knocked back and said, you don't have a marketing degree, which is then added to my imposter syndrome. So it just feels like I'm carrying this weight around, like never feeling good enough, work, hustling, hustling, hustling to prove myself. But there's this person in my head saying, that's not good enough, try harder, or I get a win, but I see all the things wrong with it. And it's, and I'm not alone. I know there's heaps of women that feel like this. Definitely. When we had this chat, 
It's quite interesting because you've mentioned that to me before and I'm obviously, for those who don't know, I actually am technically Grace's manager as well as a friend, hopefully. Yeah, so we don't want her to fire me in this conversation, guys. (laughs) But it's really interesting. So in my career as both, you know, an employee and a manager, I've faced this quite a bit as well. So I think I've got imposter syndrome. I definitely get that anxiety. I've always thought I was going to be, you know, let go in every role that I've ever done. Contrary to the part that I've actually, I've never been fired. (laughs) So so where that comes from, I don't know. Um, So it really did trigger something in me as well. But what I've also found interesting in the manager side is the people that have spoken to me about imposter syndrome tend to be my best employees. So they tend to be the people that I find do hustle. I know, Grace, you you said I feel like I'm hustling all the time. I don't see that as a negative either. I find the people that have come to me and said, you know, I'm facing this actually tend to be my best employees. They tend to be the people that really care about what they're doing. So there's, you know, there's a passion behind what they're doing. They really put in the extra effort and go the extra yards to get stuff done. And they actually tend to be the people that, if you give them a project, whether it's within their job description or not, they can work out a way to get it done. So I find it really interesting when people like yourself come to me and say, you know, this is this is how I feel. And I think there's something in this episode that not only as an employee or as someone who faces imposter syndrome on how to, you know, best help manage that and also find ways around it and find ways of working through it. But there's also something in it as a manager as well to help these people because I do think through maybe my own personal experience, we're very quick in Australia to call out what's wrong. Mm -hmm. So, and absolutely as a manager, you're supposed to be able to correct behaviour. But, you know, if something does go wrong, you have to be able to call out a mistake so that it doesn't happen again and that it's an actual learning curve for everybody but on the other side I don't think we give praise enough when someone is actually doing a good job when they're just doing their jobs so I think a lot of the time unless something's wrong we just don't talk about it so I think there's something in managers as well on how we manage people I feel like this is something that women face in general Um, I'm Mm -hmm. sure there are men out there that are saying that they also feel like they have imposter syndrome, but I do feel like it's a predominantly female issue. Yeah, I really love this chat with Cass because we not only go into women's confidence, imposter syndrome, but we also talk about if you've had a baby and you're going back to work, how can you face the fears that you've got going back into work and approaching work with a fresh, positive mindset? So we really go into almost every element, no matter where you are in your life, how anxiety can overcome your thoughts and ways that you can get around it and tackle it as well. Kastan, welcome to Unprocessed Podcast. What I would love to know first is what was the catalyst that started you on this journey for your career? I was a psychologist in private practice. So my background was coaching psychology and clinical psychology. And around 2015, 2016, um, really, I we wanted to leave the city. My husband and I wanted to move to acreage. I wanted to have animals. And I wanted to move away from one-on-one work, basically. So I really was looking for how can I um, be more flexible with how I work. And I was interested in like writing blogs and just creating more of that. This was the early days of kind of, to my mind, of online programs and things like that. And around that time, I got a a random email from somebody asking if I would be involved in writing some content for them, some well-being content for online health and well-being programs and platforms, gyms and things like that. So that was perfect for me to be able to, that was my first step into um, working from home, being paid to create content. And in this space of psychology, health, well-being, motivation, mindset, mood, et cetera, um, I also had a background in teaching mindfulness um, based cognitive therapy. So mindfulness for people who were experiencing mood disorders, depression, anxiety, and, you know, and just stress. Um, so my first foray into developing an online program that people could buy was a mindfulness. I, it still runs to this day. It's called Mindfulness for Busy People. So I basically packaged up what I knew about mindfulness and meditation and turned it into an online course. 
And as part of that creating content, I was contracted to create some content for some of these health and fitness programs that were popping up online at the time. So there's been a few of them over over the years and I would come in as the expert psychologist and as part of that I was working with Tiffany Hall who has become a good friend of mine and she and I joked one day about how great it would be to to do a podcast together never thought anything else of it and a few months later she said hey Cass I just heard that there's this new podcast um platform launching in Australia. Do you want to do a podcast with me? So we pitched Crappy to Happy, which was my, um, tra- I'd trademarked Crappy to Happy. Um, and it was accepted. So we were one of the very original podcasts on the, well, at the time, Podcast One Australia, um, which is now the Listener Network. Um, Tiff, after a couple of seasons, had other things, other priorities. And so she left. And so I just continued with the podcast and it still runs to this day. I've gone on to create other online programs. And I guess that's the short story of how it's evolved. But from the podcast, I I pitched a book. I, I got a, a multi-book contract. So there are three crappy to happy books. Um, and along the way, I was working a lot with women in the space of personal development, living more happier, satisfying, meaningful, fulfilling lives, using what I know around um, mindfulness, coaching, psychology, mental health. And at at a point there, I really tapped into this idea of that the thing that was ultimately missing was comp- self-confidence, like that women were really struggling with self-doubt and that I figured that if I could help them find a solution for that, then that would resolve a whole lot of the problems that they were experiencing in their lives, the people-pleasing and the perfectionism and the all of the stuff that women typically struggle with. Um, I thought if, if I can get them to just cultivate some genuine self-belief and self-raise their self-worth, like their sense of their own value, um, learn to say no, um, and to speak up for themselves, then I think that that would be that would be the ultimate goal. They could actually live more happier, authentic, fulfilling, meaningful, peaceful, happy lives. And so that brings me to where I am now with my Audible Original, um, The Imposter Solution and my confidence program. So one of the things that really resonates with me is how you talk about imposter syndrome. And for our listeners out there that don't know much about this, could you deep dive a bit further into what imposter syndrome is? I guess what I like to say, so imposter syndrome is the persistent feeling or belief that you are not as smart or talented or capable as other people think you are, despite all evidence to the contrary. And I always emphasize that bit about despite all evidence to the contrary, because I think a lot of times we use the term imposter syndrome to talk about just feeling like I, who am I to, like what what I would call standard self-doubt, basically. If you're doing something new for the first time, if you're launching a podcast and you've never done a podcast before and you go, well, who am I to have a podcast? Who wants to listen to me? That we, we call that imposter syndrome. I would say that that's pretty garden variety kind of the self-doubt that we all experience when we are doing something new. We don't have a track record of experience. We don't know if we can do that. If you've got the podcast at the top of the Apple charts for the last six months and you're still thinking, who am I to do this? Does anybody actually want to listen to what I have to say? That's imposter syndrome. It's when you're getting the results, you're doing the thing, you're getting the objective feedback that you have got the smarts, you're getting the grades at university, you're getting the positive feedback at work, you're doing the job and getting the results. And you still have this persistent feeling that it is a matter of time before somebody finds out that actually you're just winging this, that actually maybe they will realize that they've hired the wrong person for this job. That is imposter syndrome. And it is more common than I think a lot of people believe, but it is Mm -hmm. definitely at another level to the standard kind of self-doubt that, you know, those wobbles and confidence that we all feel from time to time when we're doing something new. You saying that, it's one of the first times I've realised my entire career I have thought I'm going to be fired. Right. Same imposter syndrome for you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But, I mean, I, you know, so that's when when you start talking about that, I'm like, okay, so that's exactly what that feeling is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, once you've identified it, how do you start combating it? You know, from my own personal experience, I live with it almost daily. I wake Mm. up feeling like I'm going to end up doing something that might end up with me being found out and I'm going right. to get fired. Yeah. And isn't yeah. that so? such a, it's 
like I know that feeling. I've experienced it myself, which is probably why I was drawn to this work. When my first book came out, everybody was hyping me up saying, how exciting to have your first book, see your first book on the shelves. And I was like, my overriding emotion was dread. Like people are going to realize it's not that good. They're so excited for it. They're going to be disappointed with it. It's only a little book. They're probably expecting something bigger, something more, something different. Like I couldn't get past it. Like I just felt sick in my stomach about my book coming out. Like it's so restrictive when you're living with that dread, like almost that it's a low level anxiety all the time. It restricts how creative you can be and the risks that you take and the ideas you put forward and the Mm. decisions that you make. And that's why I think we need to get a handle on this because it's, it's, it's an illusion. Like it's not real and it holds us back. And most importantly, it really detracts from our not us, even necessarily our success, because a lot of people with imposter syndrome are very successful. They're doing great in their careers, but it's our happiness. It's our inner peace mm-hmm. that is destroyed by it. You know, it's when you're lying awake at night or you're never able to switch off from work or you, you, you know, it's that it's just affecting every aspect of your physical and mental health, really. So I guess historically, the, even the people who have been the experts in the field since imposter syndrome and, I have to clarify, it's not a syndrome, it's not a diagnosable disorder. We, it's more appropriately called the imposter phenomenon or the imposter experience. It's a term that was first um, created in the 1970s by a couple of psychologists who first realised that this was very prevalent among their female student population, post-grad students, um, and then more broadly in pr- with professional women. And they were really interested in it just being a women's issue at the time. I think we know now that men experience it as well. But even the people from way back in the early days who started to study this and come up with solutions for overcoming it, they've been very fixated on this is a mindset issue. Like we have, you have to, this is a thinking issue. You're thinking the wrong thoughts. Like you're thinking things that aren't true and you need to challenge those thoughts and reframe those thoughts. And I think that there is very, that, that that's true. We do need to reframe our thinking, but I also think that it's only a part of the, solution. And I think that psychology has moved on from that now. Psychology and neuroscience, I should say more to the point. Cognitive therapy, cognitive techniques for challenging thoughts and reframing thoughts has been the gold standard in psychology for quite a long time. It's nowhere near the full solution. Anybody knows, you know, I know, you can tell yourself all day long that it's a it's an unrealistic thought, that it's not a true thought. There's no evidence for this thought and it doesn't make the feeling go away. Mm-hmm. So I think what we now understand in terms of neuroscience and new theories that are coming out is that so much of our experience is embedded in our nervous system. Like we have an actual visceral response. Like we, you can, and if your nervous system is reacting, like if your nervous system is activated and there's a sense of feeling unsafe or under threat, which is what imposter syndrome is, um, then you can't necessarily access even like, the thinking part of your brain. And even if you can, it's not, it's temporary. It's a temporary fix. It's a band-aid. So we actually need to work more with these days. Like I think we're really learning that we need to just learn to calm our physiology, create a sense of safety physiologically. um, And from that place, we can start to look at how we think and make different decisions and do things differently. So how do we push past it and break that circuit of fear? Because in my life, I have let fear stop me from going on holidays, stop me from moving house, stop me going to social events. And personally, I would like to know the tools and how to change my thinking so I can embrace life more. Mindfulness is a foundational skill that I teach to everybody. And it honestly, it doesn't even matter what the issue is or what you're experiencing. I always start with teaching people mindfulness. So mindfulness is simply being present and being um, present to what is happening as it's happening and without judgment. And again, it's the without judgment. That's the key part there. Being curious and open to what is happening in the moment and that means what's happening in your outside world like what's going on around you but also what's that bring what that is bringing up inside you so this is happening and this is what's happening and and what is happening within me will be a physiological sensation there'll be something going on emotionally in my body we experience all emotions as sensations in our body Um, and then there'll be stories that come up out of that and this is the thing about the changing your thoughts as well right so 
we think we change our thoughts and we change our physiological experience, we change our feelings, which is true, but actually our physiology determines a lot of the stories we tell ourselves. If, you're, if your physiology is feeling fearful or anxious, then that generates a whole lot of the stories in your head. And there's a phenomenon called story follows state. The state of your nervous system will influence the kinds of thoughts you're thinking. So if you actually, when we talk about the mind-body kind of connection, 80% of the communication between your brain and body is from your body up to your brain. Whereas we tell us, we think that it's our brain, if we think things mm -hmm. that's affecting our physiology, actually mm -hmm. the majority of it is the other way around. So we get present to what's happening and honestly, it's not that hard. The, the things that we need to do to calm down our nervous system are things like slow, deep breathing, you know, things like um, just getting present and making space for emotions in your body and allowing them to move through you instead of resisting or blocking them or trying to think yourself out of your feelings, which is what we do. We try to talk ourselves out of our feelings, think ourselves out of our feelings. We can't do that. You actually have to allow your feelings, get present and kind of accepting and open to them. And then oftentimes they will move they'll move through you on their own when you give them the space. Um, and then from that calm state, you can, um, you're in a better position then, I guess, to look at the story that you're telling yourself and uh, be able to access a broader perspective and some alternative, um, you know, some alternative ways to consider what's actually happening. But um, so I guess it's a it's multi-layered kind of process. And also, I just think the um, we got to come back to our what's really important to us in life. And I teach this in my course too. Like when you get real with what are the most important, what is the most important thing in your life? And for you, Grace, like with the travel, for example, like what is it about travel that's important to you? Because expecting to go through life never feeling discomfort, like never feeling anxiety or never feeling fear, that's an unrealistic goal as well. We have to be willing to. Um, experience a certain amount of discomfort, but knowing that it's in the service of something that is really important in life. And then the thing that's important becomes bigger than the temporary feeling of discomfort. Mm -hmm. um, and so that we can kind of keep that perspective. We're all going to feel things that are, that are difficult and uncomfortable and painful and scary. And rather than letting that feeling determine the choices we make, if we can ask ourselves, well, in the service of what, like why is it is it important that I experience this? Well, then that can help us to move mm -hmm. through it or work with it. I think the other thing I find scary is ever since COVID, I have created this cocoon for myself, this, you know, cozy little home. And then it's been quite jarring to be like, okay, now you can break out and you can go traveling and you can do whatever you want. And I'm like, I don't want to leave my cocoon. Like it's very jarring feeling. Lots of people experience the same thing. Like so many people since COVID, now they've got the opportunity to go out and do other things. We've become very like safe and secure in our little bubbles. And so I think when it comes to taking action, so here's the other thing about confidence is that we too often we wait to feel more confident or feel more able to do something before we do it. And in actual fact, we need to do the thing. It's it's the taking the action to do the thing that that will generate feelings of uh, confidence. So it's Again, it's that topsy turvy. Like we think, when I when I feel like I can do that, I can then I'll do it. When I'm more confident, then I'll do that. When I feel stronger, then I'll do that. It's actually the doing the thing that makes you feel confident and stronger. The key with that though is to be kind of push yourself to the edge of your comfort zone without leaping so far out that you have like a rebound reaction. I think mm. again, this is why we we need to tap into like our nervous system. What am I, what feels like a stretch for me that isn't so much of a stretch that I'm actually going to, my system's going to shut down because I'm going to go into a full blown panic about this. So we just gradually kind of push the edges out of our, of our comfort zone. You know, we gradually make it bigger by just doing little things that are a little bit out of our comfort zone. You know, just mixing things up in our routine, going, going, go to the movies alone, go a different way to work or go to do a different gym club. Like, you know what I mean? Like just little things in life. Um, force yourself to talk to somebody that you haven't talked to before. Um, 
little things that push us out of our comfort zone and give us the experience of being able to do that successfully. It gives us a bit of a boost and it bolsters our our self-esteem a little bit and then we feel more confident to go and do more. What is also interesting is um, to Grace's point just then, she talked about travel obviously and then COVID being that Mm. thing that has um, brought around the anxiety. Another another time I think that women start to feel this is around returning to work. So if they've been out of work for a while looking after children, for example, going back into work after maternity leave is a big stressor. So how do you start, I guess, in advance? You know in a way that you you might be starting to return to work in six months' time, in three months' time, in two months. How do you start working on it earlier rather than later so that, you know, not day one are you sitting there, A, missing your child because <laughs> it's the first time you haven't been with your child for that amount of time, and then B, also trying to deal with the fact that you're sitting in a workplace and you feel like, everything's moved on, you're not sure of decisions that have been made, you know, people could have moved on as well. There could be a change of management. There's so many different deciding factors there that can bring about the imposter syndrome. Mm. How how do you start identifying early and what are the kind of steps that you can take in the lead up to help you? That is a big time for women, definitely, that going back to work, I experienced that talking to a lot of the women. So before I created my program, I interviewed 55 women about their experiences of imposter syndrome, and I heard all sorts of experiences. And the going back to work is a big one. I think, first of all, a big part of this is um, we are so – the expectations that we have of ourselves are sometimes really unreasonable. Like expecting that you will go back into work and that you'll be fully across everything and operating at the same level that you were 12 months ago or 18 months ago or however long it was, um, is maybe not a realistic expectation. And the only person who has that expectation is you. So we hold ourselves to a much higher standard than anybody else holds us to. So it's giving yourself the space like to not have to be across everything straight away, like to have that transition back to this is a whole new experience, right? You Again, you haven't worked potentially and had a child at home or in daycare before. So we need to let ourselves feel all of that and feel all of that newness and uncertainty. And as humans, we're not that great at tolerating uncertainty. That's one of our problems. Like we, we don't like ambiguity. We like to be able to plan and predict and control. And, um, and when we can't, we feel really uncomfortable with that. So tolerating some some discomfort again. But I think also in the lead up to going back, you know, I talk about you could, um, is there somebody that you can meet up with and have a coffee with and um, get a sense of, you know, what's going on, just starting to get your head back a little bit into the game. Also acknowledging all of the experience that you do have, because I think when you go into parenthood, I know for me, when you go into parenthood and you thought you were a really competent, capable person and suddenly you are completely undone by this tiny person, it can be such a blow to women's sense of self-confidence and competence when you are struggling with the the overwhelm, like the relentlessness of what parenting is. It's such a huge, like a monumental shift in how we see ourselves and the world doesn't value mothers. Like the world doesn't value the work that women do. So therefore, you know, naturally women's self-esteem can take a big hit. Not for everybody, but for a lot of us, you know, and, and our bodies yeah. change and our brains don't work anymore. We get this brain fog. It's like our whole sense of identity is challenged. So I think it's really important to remember all of the like, – even if there's been a gap and even if things are different, no- nothing can take away from the experience that you do have and also from the life skills that you have developed even in that time that you're away. Like there is so much that goes into managing a household and looking after a baby and like it's yeah. not like you're doing nothing <laughs> when you are out of the workforce, is it? Um, so I think it's just think there are just a few keys, I guess, you know, like managing your expectations, but also giving yourself um, some self-compassion 
about mm. what you have been through mm. and not expecting, yeah, that you're going to necessarily be across everything and remembering nobody else expects that. So as a manager, how do you support people going through imposter syndrome? You know, obviously it's a hard one because people largely suffer alone, I think, or they, or, you know, they do. it's not going to be something that you're going to bring up because you don't want to say to them, you know, are you going to fire me? Like, is there, what's going on here? I don't feel like I'm competent in my job. Like it's, you're not going to do that, right? So, no. so, so how, can you identify, is there ways to help people through this or is it just through better management? It's a challenging one, I think, because you, you're quite right. People who experience imposter syndrome in the workplace typically don't talk about it for obvious reasons. Yeah. If you genuinely believe that you're somebody's going to find out any second that you don't belong here, you're not about to go and say that to somebody. And what happens also is that even if somebody else does say, I feel like an imposter, as you know, like I feel imposter syndrome, the person with imposter syndrome will often look to that person and go, yeah, but like you really are competent. Like you don't get it. Like I genuinely don't belong here. Like they just don't even connect that it's the same experience, which is why um, it is really useful to talk about it. Like it is, it is really beneficial. And because this is not a diagnosable syndrome, there's no actual evidence-based solution. Like nobody's studied what actually works. But one thing that they do know is that working with this in a group, like getting a group of people together to all share their experiences is really helpful because that's when you genuinely, and that's, which is why I run my group as a group as well. When I, mm. um, my confidence group, because we have zoom calls where we all get together and people, women find it so validating to hear that other people have the same experience. Um, so I think Sometimes just being able to call it out and and talk about it, like raising, if somebody's, an employee is not going to necessarily raise it, but a manager could and can offer that reassurance. And I think knowing how common it is in the workplace, it could be really helpful for more managers to actually raise it and, mm. and normalize it and give people that reassurance, either individually or collectively, but just start talking about it. And I think if managers also would be willing to share their own experience of imposter syndrome, I think that could be really helpful as well because it goes to the highest levels of organisations. Mm. Like It yeah. doesn't matter how successful you become, it doesn't go away for most people. In fact, mm. it gets worse because the higher you go, the more visible you are, the more you, the, the yeah. greater the fall when people eventually find out that you don't belong. So... Um, I think for, for managers potentially then it's about, you know, them being honest about their own experience too. You talked about just then, you talked about obviously knowing your self-worth and understanding your self-worth and being able to come back to that. What kind of tools can you start working with to really instill that? Because I think there's one thing in me going away and saying to myself, well, hang on a second, you've, you know, you, you're successful in your career, you have a loving partnership, you have a beautiful five-month-old daughter. You have, you know, a family that you value. You've got mum and dad who um, you value very much. You've got sibling, all of that kind of stuff. So you can kind of build your picture, I guess. And I can do that. I can sit, I can go away and do that easily. But then bringing that into my everyday life of just waking up and then going, oh, I've got to, you know, I've got to succeed. I've got to make sure that I I, you know, I bring in the revenue or I, I do this or I do that or I, you know, I've, I've got to do all of these things. How do I sit there and go, okay, take a step back, take a step back from that immediate thinking and go to, I guess, what is your sense of self before you start going into what is just going to be your work day, for example? First of all, so much of a, so many people have a sense of their um, identity wrapped up in work and work performance. Yeah. So um, just giving some thought, like just doing what you just said that you just did, Clara, like mm. just remembering there is more to me than my job and the outcomes that I achieve. You know, just coming back to that is is an important first step. When that fire, when that kind of um, th the threat response, I guess, is what I'm going to say, because you're talking about like mm. when I have to go to work and have to achieve and have to bring in revenue, like even as you're saying that, I can feel that rumbling kind of anxiety. Mm. And one of the tools that I teach people 
is actually tapping. So EFT tapping, I don't know if you're all familiar with that, you know, yeah. this whole weird yeah. tap on your face thing. It is a way to very quickly and effectively calm your nervous system, reduce cortisol in your body, reduce activity in the amygdala in your brain, like actually calm down that fight or flight response and bring you back to a level where um, you feel more at peace and more at ease. So if you sense, like I teach people that as a very quick tool that you can access at any time when you start to feel that anxiety building, when you're going into a situation and you're feeling those wobbles, um, that you can actually use EFT tapping to work through. What am I feeling? Again, it starts with being mindful, like what's going on here? What is this feeling? What are the stories that I'm telling myself? And then when you can actually use something like tapping, some people meditation, deep breathing, but I find tapping is quite an effective one, um, to work through that emotion, it's very fast, very effective, and very long-lasting. And what happens is that over time, um, you'll notice that those feelings tend to not come up as often. Mm-hmm. Um, so tools like that, you know, regularly, more regularly doing activities that do calm your nervous system, whether it is meditation or yoga or um you know, making sure you're getting enough sleep. There's all of the just lifestyle factors mm. that help to keep you in a healthy state, like a healthy mindset. Um, but my probably my my quick tool, my quick tip is the tapping one to because again, you can't talk yourself out of it. Your physiology responds to physiology. You can't communicate to your physiology using language. I tell people this all the time. This is why never in the history of anybody calming down did anybody calm down by being told to calm down. You, Your physiology only responds to physiology. So if your physiology is activated, if your nervous system is activated, you have to go in and talk to your physiology with physiology. That means you're breathing. It means moving your body. It means something like tapping, um, anything sort of body-based that will reduce stress and activity and arousal in your nervous system. That's my number one tool. So that's one element to calm down the nervous system. But is there foods that can do the same thing? I know when my partner and I are a bit elevated, we always have a pot of chamomile tea. Is that placebo or does that actually work? Well, I'm not the dietitian here, but I think, yeah, 100%. Like there are things, there are certainly foods and um, drinks that are going to impact your nervous system negatively. So, you know, for many people, caffeine will, and particularly if you have a sensitivity to caffeine, you know, that will potentially spike, um, you know, stress, cortisol in your body. Um, Alcohol, which many people use to calm down, they think it's calming them down. It actually then impacts your sleep. It actually then has a, you have a, not a, even if not a hangover hangover, you have, it has a hangover effect as it's, you know, filtering out of your body over the next day. So that can become a really vicious cycle. I always talk about the power of valerian for um, sleep issues. So I know that that's not necessarily like a calming, you're talking about just sort of calming down if you're feeling stressed. Valerian Mm -hmm. tea, um, Planet Organic is the one that I always recommend in Australia, Planet Organic bedtime tea. It's what I always go to if I'm struggling with insomnia, particularly if my mind's a bit active and I'm not sleeping very well if I'm going through a period. I'm sure you can have it during the day as well, but it might just make you a little drowsy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but things like that, like chamomile, passion fruit, uh, not passion fruit, passion flower, passion flower, chamomile, passion flower, things like that in, in a herbal tea definitely um, will have a calming effect. St. John's wort as well. St. John's wort is not indicated if you are also on antidepressants, but it's been proven to be very helpful for mood. Um, and you can get St. John's wort tea or as a capsule in the, you know, just in the pharmacy over the counter. So yeah, definitely, definitely there are things that can help. And I think we have to take that holistic approach to it. I really, absolutely, I really do. Right at the beginning of this podcast, you said that majoritively it's women who face imposter syndrome. Mm. There's a small percentage of men, men, but majoritively it is women. Why do you think that it's what is within us that seems okay. to draw us to these <laughs> kind of things? Okay, so first of all, um, when Clance and I'm, Pauline Clance and Susan I'm first came up with this this idea of the f- um, imposter experience, they believed it was predominantly a female affliction. Over the years, there's been loads (laughs) of studies done and some have found that it is is equal 
men and women. Others have found it's predominantly women. It's really mixed bag when it comes to the results as in who they who they test, who they assess, who they talk to. So it does affect men too. And I, I honestly couldn't tell you what the statistics are because I don't think it's very clear. What I can tell you is that I typically work with women and um, yeah. it is very pronounced in women. I believe there's a number of reasons for this. And partly we are raised to see ourselves as being worthless. We are, we, we, you don't see women as CEOs, as presidents and prime ministers, mm-hmm. as women don't run the world. For all of the advances that we have made, we're still not seeing women at equal levels. So it is just a, from the, our earliest age, we are conditioned to see ourselves as being somehow less than or inferior. The other thing is that even as girls are progressing through school and university, they're more likely to graduate from high school, they're more likely to go to university and succeed at university. The, um, The traits or the personality traits or qualities that get them Um, success in those environments, which are very structured and very like, you know, you know what you got to do to get an A, are not the same qualities that are rewarded in the workplace. So the more assertive, direct, you know, almost brash, aggressive sort of behaviors, really pushing yourself forward, um, they're typically qualities that men tend to demonstrate. And that's what gets them ahead in the workplace. Women tend, even young girls going into the workplace, they tend to be more, I'll sit and wait and I'll do a really good job and I'll wait for somebody to notice what a good job I'm doing. And the fact of the matter is that, so number one, that's not the qualities that are going to get them ahead in the workplace. So therefore they they immediately start seeing other people, men rise above them, even if they are doing as good or better job. So again, the message is reinforced, I'm worth less. But then even if women demonstrate those same qualities, the research will bear this out. The research is is um, very clear that women are punished for those behaviours. They're not rewarded. If women are direct and assertive and push themselves ahead and you know do all of those same things that men do, they are penalised for it. They are not promoted. They are... They're paid less. They're ostracized. They're look. We've all experienced this. Women mm-hmm. are just held to a different standard. There are very real gender biases that exist, and I teach that in my course too. Like women have got to stop probably thinking of this as an individual problem. Like this is something wrong with me, and recognize that we are all products of the environment and the world that we live in. That we are sent these messages every day about what we are valued for, and it's not for our smarts. It's for how we look, um, what we're wearing. No matter what we do, where we can't get it right, women are questioned about who's looking after the baby when they go to work. Men aren't. Mm-hmm. So there's so much going on that causes women to feel like they need to work twice as hard to get half the result. And it's because it's true. It's actually mm-hmm. a fact. I also believe that a history of early, um, well, any kind of trauma is going to feed, and you know, we haven't even talked about this, like early childhood experiences, family dysfunction, um, any sort of childhood adversity is likely to have an impact on your sense of self-worth. Children internalize a sense that there is something kind of wrong with them if there's stuff going on in the family environment. And we all know that girls and women are much more likely to be um, the victims of trauma as than men are. So there's all of these multi-layered things that I think feed into that that self-doubt with women and and then, then there's intergenerational stuff. Like if your mother and grandmother have been not allowed to work or not allowed to own a house or, you know, judged by the man that they're with, mm-hmm. there's also evidence that that kind of feeds down in your our DNA to a degree. Mm-hmm. So we're all kind of carrying historical trauma as well. Yeah. So big answer to a... Um, to a small question, but uh, it's complicated and it's multi-layered. But I also 100% believe that once we know that, that can help us to recognize that this is not an issue with me. This is not a problem with me. I'm not somehow flawed or broken because I struggle with self-doubt. This is actually, there's a whole lot of stuff going on that is causing me to feel like this and I can do something to take control of it and turn it around. I don't have to keep on being hijacked like and have my life um choices determined by this this fear that i feel and i can actually hold it in perspective and see it for what it is and choose to make some different um choices and use some tools to help me 
to have a different outcome. But it's just that awareness, isn't it? Like that having that sense of perspective, like, okay, this is not because I think too many women feel like there's something wrong with me. What what is wrong with me? Why do I struggle? Why am I doubting myself? And and then we get into this cycle of perfectionism and overworking and overachieving and in order to try to prove ourselves. Um yeah. when it's it's unnecessary. I think also a lot of people who don't even recognize it yet, and this is someone there's something I'm speaking from experience you then get just caught in the cycle of it just being yeah. normal. Yeah. And you just think that that's, you know, that you're not worth it. <laughs> exactly to your point, that you're just not worth it and that you're, you know, that you're not, you're going to get found out at some point. Yeah. So it's trying to get them to identify it first, I think, is the first, is the key thing. The two key factors, like two key sort of um, manifestations of the imposter experience are overwork and avoidance. And what it is essentially is that when you do have a success, you don't necessarily internalize that success. You don't own that as being due to your inherent capability. So women particularly, or anybody with the imposter syndrome will attribute their success to either luck, fluke. I got somebody took a shine to me. She just liked me. Um, nobody else applied for the job. I just um, got them on a good day. Um, I was just in the right place at the right time. That, that kind of luck fluke, I've just fell into it. I just and therefore, I can't necessarily be sure that I will get so lucky again. Therefore, I can't kind of rely on that. Or they destroy themselves with overwork and perfectionism and overthinking. And um, and when they do then get successful, it's like success comes at a cost of overwork and stress and burnout and overwhelm because they think that's what's required to continue to have that success. So if I only feel like I got my success because I got lucky or because I had to work harder than everybody else, then that's not necessarily, it doesn't feel like that's sustainable or repeatable. And therefore, no matter how successful you become, it never goes away because it's always, you, you still can't ever be sure that yeah. that will stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because I don't haven't internalized it. So the people who don't have imposter syndrome, they can have success and own it. Like I proved mm. it, I can do it. It's due to my own grit, persistence, intelligence, resourcefulness. You know, even if I did have connections, I made it happen because of my personal qualities. Um, and therefore I can rely on my personal qualities to get me through the next challenge. Whereas somebody with imposter syndrome, they don't have that sense of mm. that 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 inherent self like capability, I guess. Well, we will definitely link all the program in the show yeah. notes for anyone who wants to um, jump on and also your website and your Amazon and your books and stuff as well. So thank you. Thank you Thank so you much. for having me. I'm really, really, um, I was thrilled that you invited me. So it's been a pleasure. Like this podcast, please give us a five-star review and share it with someone who you think would benefit from it. We want to help as many people as possible live healthier lives. This podcast is general in nature. We aren't doctors or health practitioners. But if this podcast has prompted something for you, we really encourage you to make an appointment with your health practitioner and get advice that is tailored to you. This podcast is recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples.